All right. Is this on? This is not on. All right. I'm going to go ahead and uh, get started. Um, if you will, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And uh, we're just going to start our time reading uh, Genesis 12 down to about um, the middle of verse 7. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Well, let's uh, go to the Lord and uh, begin our time with a word of prayer. Well, Father, again, we thank you for this evening. We do pray that you would uh, bless our study again as we are beginning to Think about what your word teaches about the last days and the different ages that are described in Scripture about the eternal kingdom and the things that are to come. We pray that as we consider um, various views on these matters, that we would always be um, charitable, that we would understand them accurately. And then that we would always examine them in light of your word. So again, be with us in our study this evening, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, tonight we are beginning a new study on the doctrine of eschatology. And uh, if you've never heard that word before, it comes, and you can see it uh, written up here, it comes from the Greek word eschatos, meaning last, and therefore eschatology simply means the study of the last things, or the study of the end times. And what eschatology focuses on is what Scripture teaches about how history is going to unfold. 
It considers things like the return of Christ and the things that must happen before He returns, or, according to some views, the things that must happen after He returns. It considers the questions about the millennial reign of Christ as described in Revelation chapter 20. Is this a literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth? Is it figurative? Is it happening now? Or is it going to happen in the future? These are the kinds of questions that eschatology considers. It even considers questions like, what is the relationship between Israel and the church. And related to this, it necessarily has to address questions of biblical interpretation. Do the prophets, for example, foretell of a future rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and the restoration of national Israel? Or are there statements regarding Israel, are these statements to be interpreted figuratively or typologically in some sense? Eschatology touches on a lot of areas of Christian doctrine. And in many ways, the conclusions that you form on issues like biblical interpretation, on issues like the nature of the church and the relationship of the covenants, the nature of the kingdom of God and the work of Christ, all of these things are also going to shape the conclusions that you arrive at on the subject of eschatology. And your conclusions about eschatology are likewise going to shape how you understand many, many passages in Scripture. What those passages are referring to. How those passages are going to be fulfilled. And moreover, the conclusions that you arrive at about eschatology are more than likely going to shape how you live now. How you understand the things that are going on in the world now and how you are going to respond to them. Eschatology is going to shape your responses to the world and your life in it. The point is that eschatology is not just some minor little point of Christian doctrine that only trained theologians get to debate about, but that doesn't really matter to the average Christian. Now, eschatology is something that touches on just about every single aspect of the Christian life, whether you realize it or not. And a lot of the times, you just don't realize it. You just embraced a certain worldview, a certain set of doctrines that shapes how you live, and it's not really thought about. In the same way that it can be said also that every Christian has a theology, 
The question is just whether or not that theology is a good or a bad theology. The, the same can be said about your eschatology. Every single Christian has an eschatology. The question, again, is just a matter of whether or not your eschatology, your understanding of the last things is a good one, is a biblical one, or is a bad one. It's an error. And so tonight we're going to start working on fine-tuning our eschatology and thus our understanding of Scripture and its promises and how those promises are going to be fulfilled and therefore the kinds of things that we should be looking forward to and hoping in. And what I want to do as we make our way through this subject is to consider um, all of the major uh, views of eschatology that Christians hold. There's, There's basically four of them. There's four major views of eschatology. The first, the one we'll look at tonight, is called classical dispensational premillennialism. Classical dispensational premillennialism. The, the second view that we'll look at once we, get, go, uh, once we finish um, working our way through this one is um, called historic premillennialism. So there's two premillennial views mainly, dispensational premillennialism and historic premillennialism. The third view we'll consider is uh, post-millennialism, and then fourth, and my favorite, <laughs> amillennialism. We'll do that one last. Now, I'm going to define each of these as we come to them and as we work through them, but these are your, your basic uh, four major views. There are variations among them, even within the, the dispensational camp or, or, or world. There, there are several variations of, of dispensationalism. One, one of the more recent ones is called progressive dispensationalism. And even within post-millennialism, you have different variations on that. You have different takes still on the relationship between Israel and the, ch- and the church. You have uh, uh, different understandings about how much of Scripture has been fulfilled. Um, So there are variations uh, within these, but we're only going to look at the major views, which are basically the ones that are most widely held. We're not going to spend any time really considering the um, out-and-out heretical uh, or unorthodox views of eschatology either. Um, So again, these four views I just named, um, all of these... It's worth saying all of these different views can be and are held by Orthodox Bible-believing Christians. So again, we're we're not talking about any views that are um, so unbiblical they've departed from the gospel. All of these are are kind of in-house Christian views. Of course, that doesn't mean that they're all right by necessity. Either one is right and the others are wrong, or they're all wrong, right? Uh, but they're not all uh, right. Um, as we go through this, of course, there, there may be um, some uh, strange-sounding beliefs that uh, these views propose, and there may be errors that produce 
unhealthy fruit among Christians, but again, among all of these views is shared an understanding and embrace of who God is and the true message of the Gospel. They all believe that Jesus died for sinners, that He rose bodily for their justification and eternal life, that He's returning again and will reign forever and ever. There are some views that have been argued for which are not, of course, as I said, in any way biblical. Some of these deny the return of Christ altogether. Some of these deny the resurrection, that there's a literal resurrection. These would be considered outside the bounds of Christian orthodoxy. And so we're not going to really dive into those. We may touch on these views a little bit, but I'm not going to do a deep dive into them. But what I'm going to do with each of these four major views is first um, give a broad overview of what they teach. Again, with all these, we can't get into too many uh, specifics, but I want to give an overview of the major beliefs that are held, how they understand the Bible's storyline and the storyline of history unfolding and some of the supporting proof texts that are appealed to in support of the views. And then in the following sessions, we will evaluate these views and look at some of their strengths, look at some of their uh, weaknesses uh, as well. And as I said a moment ago, tonight we're going to begin by looking at the view known as dispensational premillennialism. Now, Just by way of providing some definitions, a dispensation refers to a period of time or an era, and dispensationalists argue that the Bible cannot be properly understood without recognizing that God's unfolding purposes in the world and his relationship to mankind must be divided into seven distinct dispensations, or seven eras or periods of time. You have what is called, first, the dispensation of innocence. And this refers to the period from the beginning of creation to the fall. That's the dispensation of innocence. And then second, you have the dispensation of conscience, which is understood to be from the fall to Noah. Third, there's the dispensation of human government, which takes place between Noah and Babel. Fourth, there's the dispensation of promise, which is basically from Abraham to Moses. Fifth, you have the dispensation of law, which is from Moses going to the time of Jesus. Sixth is the dispensation of grace, which is from Pentecost to what is called the secret rapture. And we'll get into that in a little bit more detail in a moment. And then seventh, there is the dispensation of the kingdom, which refers to the millennium, the literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. 
that follows, of course, the rapture of the church. And in these seven dispensations or periods of time, God is relating to men and carrying out His redemptive purposes in distinct ways. And so that's basically where the word dispensationalism comes from. It refers to a way of organizing the unfolding storyline of Scripture. The word premillennialism has to do with when Christ is understood to return in relation to the millennium passage of Revelation 20. So Revelation 20 is the only place where a millennium or a thousand years is mentioned. And in Revelation 20, verse 4 to 5, it speaks there of Christ reigning for a thousand years, or again, a millennium. And premillennialists argue that the thousand years is a literal, exact period of time. So not a thousand years in one day, or a thousand years in three days, or any time less. An exact amount of time of a thousand years in which Christ is reigning as King over all the earth, on the earth. And the pre, in premillennialist, means that He returns as the resurrected Christ before that millennium begins. Hence, premillennial. Right? Christ is going to return before that thousand-year reign. And in fact, when He does return, that's when that thousand-year reign begins. So let me just stop there. We're talking about definitions. Just see any questions so far or any points that need to be clarified so far. I want to make sure we get our definitions straight here. Dispensational premillennialism. All right. Now, dispensationalism is probably the most widely held eschatological position among Christians today. This has not always been the case. This is something that is, in the history of the church, very new. Dispensational premillennialism is really only about 150, maybe at the most 200 years old. And its popularity is really only about 100 or so years old. But the view has been widely popularized over the last several years years or the last hundred or so years and it has it has been popularized in various ways probably the first major impetus to its being popularized was the publication of the Schofield reference bible maybe you've seen that maybe you've had maybe you had one i'm not sure uh, the Schofield reference bible when that was published it became a very popular study bible and its study notes were written distinctly from a dispensational premillennialist point of view. Okay? So a very widely published Bible, a lot of people bought it, studied it, and was influenced by it. Another popular, uh, popularizer of this view came with the publication of Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Has anyone ever read that book before? 
Does anyone want to expose themselves? Is that right? No, uh, the late great planet Earth. That was published in 1970, and from 1970 to 1999, it sold around 35 million copies. Again, this was a dispensational premillennialist book that popularized these views. In the mid-1990s, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins then published their very popular Left Behind series of books. And there has been, since the publication, an estimated 80 million copies of those books sold. Not to mention, of course, the numerous Left Behind movies that were made on the basis of those books that popularized this distinct view of the end times in eschatology. In fact, shared some of this with, with some of you uh, yesterday. In honor of tonight's study, uh, the family and I watched the first 30 minutes of Nicolas Cage's Left Behind movie last night, just to the point where everybody disappeared and the rapture happened. And it was, it was something. <laughs> the point is that this is a very, very widely held and popular view among many Christians today. All of the televangelists on TV, right? You ever turn on TBN or any other like Christian broadcasting network, anything like that? Every single person you find on there teaching. I can't think of anyone not on there. Every single person teaches from a dispensational, premillennialist point of view. So you've got all of the popular Christian media that has, uh, again, popularized this view. So we're going to spend some time getting into this one. Uh, again, we'll, we'll spend some time looking at a, an overview of it tonight, and then in the following weeks we'll get into more details of it as we, as we go along and um, offer some critiques and and things of that nature. Now, um, we want to understand how dispensationalists put the Bible together. What is the storyline of Scripture that they see unfolding in history, and how is it going to play out in the future? And in order to understand this storyline, you really need to begin with that passage that we started by uh, uh, reading this evening. Genesis chapter 12 and the Abrahamic covenant. Dispensationalists argue that when God makes a covenant with Abraham, he really attaches to it three distinct promises. There are promises that are made to Abraham as an individual, personal promises given to him. There are promises made to Abraham's descendants as a national ethnic people. And there are promises that are made to all of the families of the earth. Abraham, for his part, is promised to have a great name and to be made into a great nation. His descendants are promised that they will not only multiply extensively, but they will inherit a land that will be an everlasting possession 
for them. And you can see this again, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, Genesis chapter 17, verses 7 and 8, and Genesis 13, verses 15 to 16. And that land that they are promised to receive is specifically defined as the land of Canaan. The land that Abraham saw with his own eyes and the land that he was sojourning in. And then the third distinct promise concerns the nations. And the promise given about the nations is that all of the nations, all of the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. Each one of these promises must be fulfilled in a very literal way. Or, just to clarify, literal according to how dispensationalists use the term literal. We'll consider their approach uh, on literal interpretation uh, when we evaluate the view, but the main idea here is that these are distinct promises that are fulfilled in three distinct ways. Probably the most important distinction that comes out of this um, particular view is the distinction between Israel as the national physical descendants of Abraham and the church, which largely consists of all the families of the earth. If there is one major hallmark to dispensational premillennialism, it's not literal interpretation. A lot of them will say it is, but the hallmark is the distinction between Israel and the church. Dispensationalists strongly argue that the church is not, in any sense, Israel. It hasn't become Israel. It hasn't replaced Israel. It hasn't in any way fulfilled Israel. Israel is a national ethnic people. And to these people in particular, to Abraham's seed, has been promised a great number of physical descendants and a specific land. Now, this is a pivotal covenant for dispensationalists because the fulfillment of this covenant, or more importantly, as we'll see, the lack of fulfillment of this covenant thus far determines how all the other covenants are understood and how many other passages in Scripture are to be interpreted. In fact, there's one dispensationalist, J. Dwight Pentecost, very well known among dispensationalist circles. He says that this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, determines the whole future program for the nation Israel and is a major factor in biblical eschatology. This is the bedrock of the whole view. So if you don't understand the distinctions that are being made in the Abrahamic covenant, 
you're not going to understand why it is that dispensationalists believe in all of the different things that they do. Again, like a literal millennium and a restored Israel, a rebuilt temple, even the rapture is connected to their understanding of how the Abrahamic covenant is going to be fulfilled. The promises of the Abrahamic covenant require that there be a distinct national ethnic people of Israel and that they inherit the land of Canaan forever. If that hasn't happened yet, if Israel is not in the land as a sovereign nation, if they aren't believing in their Messiah, then the promises of the Abrahamic covenant have not yet been fulfilled. And therefore, we are still awaiting for a future regathering of the people of Israel and for them to possess their land once again. Now, as Scripture unfolds, we of course find other covenants that God makes. But again, all of these covenants are in some sense related to the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant, for example, or the Palestinian covenant as it is sometimes called, expands specifically on the land promises of the Abrahamic covenant. A key passage here comes from Deuteronomy chapter uh, 30, and particularly verses 1 to 10. And what the first part of that chapter teaches is that Israel, as a national people, are going to enter into the land of their inheritance. Remember, the, the, the giving of Deuteronomy is, is happening prior to them entering into the land of Canaan. So it is, it is prophetically telling them they're going to enter into the land of their inheritance, but because of their inevitable, inevitable disobedience, they're eventually going to be cast out of the land and exiled. But there's a promise given that at some point after this exile, they will repent of their sins, they will turn back to the Lord. They will have new hearts. They'll trust in their Messiah. And the nation as a people will then be brought back into the land to have the land as their eternal possession from that moment on. And this future return, dispensationalists argue, has, of course, not yet happened. National Israel is still dispersed. They are still living in unbelief. They're still rejecting their Messiah. And therefore, the land promise still awaits to be fulfilled. For the dispensationalist, this becomes a very important part of their eschatology and all of the events that are supposed to happen in the future. Then when you come to the Davidic covenant, the same kinds of things can be said. 
The dispensationalist sees many parts of the Davidic covenant as being fulfilled already. David had an offspring, they argue. Solomon, his offspring, built a house for God, the temple. His offspring was disciplined for sin. You can think of Solomon again and the subsequent kings that were to follow him. However, there is one key part in the Davidic covenant that has not yet been fulfilled, which is the literal throne of David being established on earth forever. That hasn't happened yet. One of the promises made to David was that one of his offspring would have an eternal kingdom and would sit on his throne forever. And dispensationalists rightly identify this son as Jesus Christ. And so we would say yes and amen to that. We, we would agree with that. However, they do not believe that Christ has fulfilled this covenant yet. The Davidic covenant was about a kingdom that was located in a geopolitical territory, the land of Canaan. It was about Israel having a national existence in land that had defined geographical boundaries. And one of David's offspring, namely Christ, was promised to rule over this kingdom in this territory. And Jesus, therefore, has not yet fulfilled that Davidic covenant. He's not seated on David's throne. He's seated on the throne in heaven at the right hand of God. But that throne is not the Davidic throne. The Davidic throne is on earth. And since Christ is not on earth at present, we are still awaiting the fulfillment of at least part, an important part, of the Davidic covenant. Now, this will take place, they argue. But it will only take place in the millennial reign of Christ. When you come to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 to 5, that's talking about the millennial kingdom. That's when the Davidic covenant is going to be fulfilled with Christ reigning on it on earth. In fact, all of the promises that, again, according to this eschatology, are still awaiting fulfillment, the eternal Davidic throne, the promise of land, believing Israel, Israel as a nation, ruling all the other nations through their king, all of these various promises will be and, and only will be fulfilled in that millennial kingdom. Now this then brings us to the new covenant and how dispensationalists understand it. I think again it's worth remembering here that a basic interpretive approach of dispensationalists based on their understanding of the Abrahamic covenant is that there is a major distinction between national, ethnic Israel and the church. 
You've got to keep that in mind here. And this distinction continues even with the new covenant. But the dispensationalist, the church does not fulfill the new covenant. Let me say that again. The church does not fulfill the new covenant. In the most important passage that describes the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, where God specifically makes promises about a future new covenant. I think the, the mic's going off. I'm going to just turn that off. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I need it. Where God here in Jeremiah 31 is specifically making promises about a future new covenant, all dispensationalists agree that this is not fulfilled by the church. Now, depending on which dispensationalist you're reading, they may believe that the church participates in the new covenant or that there's an application of the new covenant to the church, or some even argue that there are actually two new covenants. Two new covenants that you find within the New Testament. But however they relate the church to the new covenant, what they all agree on is that the only way the new covenant can be fulfilled is when national ethnic Israel believes in Christ and she is forgiven of her sins. And their argument, of course, is very simple. They look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, and it says there, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They look at that text, and they assert, or they make the claim, they, 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 they make the observation it doesn't say anything there about the nations. You didn't hear any mention of nations. It doesn't say anything about Gentiles. It doesn't say anything about the church. This is a covenant that is promised to and for Israel as a people and a nation. And a plain, literal interpretation means that only national Israel can fulfill the covenant. That means that like the Abrahamic covenant, like the Palestinian covenant, like the Davidic covenant, this covenant also, the new covenant, awaits fulfillment in the future. This is also part of the program of the things that must take place in the future according to God's redemptive purposes and promises and that will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom of Christ. So again, I think you can probably see with all of this that a key commitment to dispensationalism is a commitment to the distinction between Israel and the church. Passages in Scripture that refer to Israel must be and can only be fulfilled by national ethnic Israel and passages in Scripture that refer to the church are referring to a separate and distinct people. Are you with me so far? 
Now, how this basic framework plays out throughout the rest of Scripture and into the future, this is really where you start getting a lot of the fun, wild, and crazy parts of dispensationalism. Right? This is where we get really interesting. So with the rest of our, t- our time tonight, I want to give an outline of some of the remaining events that dispensationalists believe are yet to come. These are the things that we are awaiting to happen in the future. And again, like I said earlier, we're not going to have time to get into all of the reasons why these things are believed to be coming in the future or why all of the different passages are cited, but I I want to just give you this this outline of the, the, the way the world is supposed to unfold in light of the dispensational eschatology. So, because of this radical distinction between the church and Israel, and then of course related to it, dispensationalists believe that the time that we're living in now, which is the church age, is a kind of a parenthesis, they will use that language, a parenthesis, in God's plans of redemption, and specifically His overall plans for Israel. This is not, of course, to say that God never had a plan for the church, and that the church is just kind of like a plan B in God's purposes, whereas Israel is plan A. It's simply to say that the bulk of the Old Testament's attention is given to national ethnic Israel. And since Israel rejected her Messiah when He came, they have now come under God's judgment, and now God is working in and through the church in what is understood to be the church age. But the church age, just like the other dispensations, will eventually come to a conclusion. And God will again, at this conclusion, return to working with Israel among the nations. Now, the conclusion to this church age, dispensationalists will argue, is actually outlined for us in the book of Revelation. They argue that Revelation chapter 2 and 3, which are those chapters dealing with the seven letters to the seven churches, these were not only letters addressing seven literal churches dealing with very literal issues during their time, but it is also describing seven ages or seven different phases that the church is going to go through in history. And most dispensationalists believe that we've now come, in our day, to the very last age among all of those ages. It's it's always a convenient thing, too. The dispensations are always the last ones on earth, right? Um, But but they they argue that that these these seven periods have have gone, and and we're in the seventh. We've come to the final. Now, um, time is going to prohibit us from looking at each one of these ages in detail, but this interpretation includes things like the apostolic period. That's one age. And then there's, a, there's an age of severe 
persecution and martyrdom that breaks out. That's another age. And then you've got a, an age of the apostate church. And that's, that's, that's always Roman Catholicism. So that's your, your Middle Ages, right? That's the apostate age. You've got the Reformation, which that's always a period of light. So that's a good age. But eventually, you come to lukewarm Laodicea. And this is understood to be the last phase of church history where the church has now largely come under judgment for being lukewarm. And again, that's the age we're now living in. It's good news, isn't it? <laughs> we're under judgment. Um, in, in a sense, actually, for the dispensationalists, it is good news. Because it means that the rapture is now all the more close. They believe uh, that if you're a believer, this means that at any moment, you could be raptured. When the church age comes to an end, the next phase on the prophetic timeline is what's known as the secret rapture. And this is the belief that the church is going to be taken off the earth in a moment's notice, within the twinkling of an eye, and it's going to be raptured or caught up into heaven. Jesus is going to come again, but this coming is not a visible, globally seen coming. This coming of Christ is secret. No one else knows that it has happened. Dispensationists believe that according to their interpretation of Daniel chapter 9, as well as some other passages, and basically the whole of the book of Revelation, they believe that a seven-year period of time, known as the time of the Great Tribulation, is going to come on the whole earth. It is a period of time that is marked by wrath, and plagues, and absolute destruction. And this is what basically the whole of the book of Revelation is talking about. This seven-year period of the Great Tribulation where God's wrath is just being poured out on the earth. But God promises that He's going to spare the church from going through this time. According to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world is the seven-year period of the Great Tribulation. But God says in that verse that He will keep the church from that trial. So this, this is where the rapture comes in. In the rapture, God secretly snatches the church away from the earth. And this idea is based on wrong interpretations, but interpretations nonetheless of passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, where those who are alive at the coming of Christ are caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Or Matthew chapter 24, verses 40 to 41 in the Olivet Discourse, where two men are in a field and one is taken, and the other is left. It's like the rapture, and left behind. Boom! You know, you got two people there, and one disappears, and the other one is there. That's your rapture. 
There are other passages that they looked at as well, but the dispensationalist looks at these passages and sees in them a secret rapture. It's these kinds of passages that are the basis for the idea of an any moment second coming of Christ and the disappearance of the church. So, if you believe in an any moment Christ could be here in the next millisecond kind of coming of Christ, whether you realize it or not, you've been influenced by dispensational premillennialism. That is a distinct view of dispensationalists. That there's sort of no warning, that there's no preparation, that there's no signs of the times, that at any moment, Christ could come and we're gone. That's a dispensational rapture view. So, the church is raptured, and when she's raptured, she then enjoys the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven. She has heavenly bliss after this rapture. But on earth, when the church is raptured, all hell breaks loose. And that in a very literal sense. Plagues, wars, earthquakes, famines, total destruction comes upon the world. We're talking like two-thirds or more of the world's population devastated and wiped out. Earth, during the tribulation, is experiencing God's judgments. However, this is also when certain prophecies begin to be fulfilled. The Antichrist, who is a kind of satanic empowered figure, is going to rise to power. He will make a covenant with the people of Israel. He will allow them to rebuild the temple uh, in Israel, and they will be grateful for it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Every time I, every time I think of this one, I'm just, I, I think about some of my dispensational friends. and we, We've had many debates on this particular issue. And I cannot wrap my head around this one. And I'll tell you why. Because you've got to fathom. You have to imagine a time that is coming, right? When you have eventually the return of the Lamb of God from heaven. And what are you eventually going to be doing? You're offering sacrifices to the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. It, it just can't happen. It can't happen. But, <laughs> that's the view, okay? The temple is going to be rebuilt, and all the people of Israel will be grateful for it. However, in the middle of this... <laughs> oh, I'm struggling here. In the middle of this tribulation period, <laughs> I told you, this is where the fun stuff happens, Okay? In the middle of this period, you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna have, woo! All right, maybe I did. <laughs> oh goodness, I was going good until we got to this part. Okay, now you get a desolator who arises. Now this is in accordance. This is in accordance with Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse, which is interpreted holy future. Right? Everything that Jesus is talking about 
And Matthew 24 is all to be coming in the future. And this desolator is going to arise, and this desolator is going to defile the temple that's been rebuilt, and he's going to scatter the people of Israel. War's then going to break out against <laughs> You guys got to pray for me right now. Because <laughs> there's a lot involved in this, okay? War breaks out. Israel's scattered. And then there's a grand battle called the Battle of Armageddon. However, before Israel is wiped out, Michael, before they're wiped out... <laughs> Before, <laughs> before they're wiped out, okay, this, this is when, you guys got to help me here, this is when Christ is going to return, basically for a third time, a third time, but literally on earth, he's going to come, he's going to wipe out all of Israel's enemies, and it's at that point that we then enter into the millennial kingdom of Christ. Christ will reign with His people, Israel, in the land of Israel. They will receive that land as their inheritance, and they will rule with Christ for a thousand years. Again, according to Revelation 20, at the end of the thousand years, there's then another satanic rebellion that breaks out Christ destroys it, and He will subsequently usher in the new heavens and the new earth, world without end. Amen. Okay? There's a lot there, okay? But your basic timeline from this point forward is the secret rapture, followed by the period of the Great Tribulation, followed by the literal thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, which is then followed by the new heavens and the new earth. Now, there's a lot of details that are wrapped up within all of these different events, a lot of things that are supposed to unfold during the Great Tribulation that I've left out tonight. But that's your basic scheme of how the future is to unfold. As I said earlier, a lot of this, a lot of these different outworkings are based on this core commitment of the radical distinction between literal ethnic Israel, national Israel, and the church, and a literal method of interpretation that is really, as we'll see in our future sessions is more so a kind of hyper-literal interpretation. We're going to look at some of the more details of, of that, again, in, in future sessions, and then we'll, we'll evaluate and critique some of its major problems then, and, and hopefully I can compose myself a little bit better when we get into some of the more <laughs> nitty-gritty issues. But that's your basic overview of dispensational premillennialism, okay? Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there before I get myself in any more trouble and just see if you guys got questions or if I need to clarify something or, or thoughts on, on that. There's a lot there. Yes. Yeah. 
Now there, there are, so the third temple is largely based on the book of Ezekiel. Okay, the, the, the rebuilding of the temple was outlined in Ezekiel. However, what's interesting is not all dispensationalists believe that the temple will be literally built like it's described in Ezekiel because it's so large. It's almost like impossible to believe. I mean, but I think if you actually measure the dimensions, I mean, it's like the size of North America kind of thing, right? Um, so not all of them believe that the temple will be those dimensions necessarily, but there will be a third temple. Sacrifices will be re reinstituted. However, to be fair, these aren't sacrifices for atonement. Okay? So it's not as if, um, it's not as if they're, they're offering a lamb or a ram or a bull or a goat or anything like that to atone for their sins. Their sins have been paid for by Christ. So there's a transformation that takes place with the sacrifices. The sacrifices now are all memorial sacrifices and sacrifices of thanksgiving. Right, so that, that provides a little bit better explanation, but still, I mean, you're slaughtering animals in front of the Lamb of God, right? I mean, that's a, I see that as just a major, major issue among, among others, but yeah. <laughs> he talked about uh, some significance of, I don't know, post World War II and Israel being able to reclaim land. Explain that, flesh that out a little bit for me. Yeah, so it is significant, right? And especially for, you know, if you, if you hold this view of these, the literal fulfillment of the land promises and, and things like that, it's very significant that Israel was reconstituted as a geopolitical territory. Now, of course, their, uh, their boundaries are not anywhere close to what they were and what they were promised, but it's kind of like a, um, a, a foretaste of what is to come, like things are getting ready. Israel's getting back into the land, which means that these prophecies are on their way to being fulfilled. Right? So yes, the, the reconstitution of, uh, of, of Israel as a country becomes real important. But it's worth saying that this is a view that was held long before that happened, you know. So it's, it's not as if it depends on that, but that certainly reinforces it. Do you, you know? think that that helps with the rise, like that event, and then like things like the seven-day war, where they like seemingly miraculously won a war where they were outnumbered? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, but because it's, it's, you know, it's, God is protecting this nation, okay? You, you get all these, uh, you know, Gentile nations coming against them, and, and he's, he's not letting them be slaughtered. You know, they go through the Holocaust, and they haven't been, extinct, or they haven't been extinguished, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, God is, God is blessing his people. And, you know, I, I don't have, let me, let me clarify, I have no problem with recognizing a distinct national group of the people of Israel, the question is end up what, what, what we're going to get into is whether or not the fulfillment of a lot of these promises within both the Old and the New Testament are requiring the reconstituted nation of Israel made up of the ethnic people of Israel. That's the issue. Yes, yeah. So that would take place during the Great Tribulation, right? 
So you would, you would, have, um, you would still have unbelieving Israel during, during the Great Tribulation. Um, in, in fact, I mean, this gets into some of the in, in, interpretations of, of Revelation. You've, you've, got, uh, you've got some believing in Israel, some unbelieving in Israel. Um, God protects the believing Israel um, in the midst of this assault against them. But eventually, um, and particularly when Christ returns, if, if not all of them, the vast majority of them are now, are now accepting their Messiah. The church is raptured. Yes, and, you know, they will say too as well, there, there are still going to be like some believing Gentiles during the Great Tribulation. It, it just very, very few. Won't, won't be a lot of them. And it's strange, as, well, there's a lot of strange things, but <laughs> it's, 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 it's interesting to note, if you will, um, that the believing Gentiles during the Great Tribulation are, they're saved from their sin, but they're, it's, it's as if God is still pouring wrath on them. So it's like they're being punished to a degree because they did not believe prior to the Great Tribulation. Okay. Yes. Yeah, and that will that will also be the case. Yeah, in the millennial reign. Okay. Now, to be fair, them being subjugated doesn't necessarily mean like they're miserable. You know, it's it's kind of like if you if you've got if you could just imagine for a moment, Christ, who's a good king, right, is reigning now over a, a righteous kingdom. And he's reigning over all these nations where, this is another thing we didn't touch on, there are unbelievers still in the millennial kingdom of, of Christ as well. But there's, there's much prosperity during the thousand years, so it's, it's not as if they're all like in chains and miserable. There are, or there may be, um, unbelievers who are basically just having to um, swallow their pride while his rule is, is taking place, and, and eventually at the end of the thousand years, they're going to be part of a grand rebellion uh, against him. So it's not as if all the Gentiles would be happy during the millennial kingdom, but it's not as if, it's not as if he's just like beating them. But there is, there is a kind of um, um, intentional forced rule over them because, according to Revelation 19, He's ruling them now with a rod of iron, right? So it's just, you know, you don't want to serve me? I don't care. I'm putting my foot down kind of thing, right? <laughs> I was going to ask, this is not like an end times for 
So there, there's, there's variations on that. So you, you, you would have some dispensationalists, not all by any means, but some who would largely look at like the Sermon on the Mount as something that was um, for the Jews. This is like the law of Christ that he's laying down. Um, Harrison, will you, you take care of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, there's, a, there's a law that he's given to the Jews, but since they rejected him, okay, now, God is working in and through the church.